0: Welcome to the Cash Flow Guys Podcast. That's right. You know where you are and you know what time it is. This is Tyler Sheff, and I am the host of the Cash Flow Guys Podcast. And this week, I'm going to start this episode with a couple of questions for you. Some company names that you may or may not have heard of, but I'm curious if you've ever heard of them. These names mean anything to you because they mean a lot to some folks. Uh, let's start with Bay Lake Properties. Bay Lake Properties. How about Tomahawk Properties? How about Latin American development and management? How about Retlaw? And last but not least, Reedy Creek Ranchlands. And Reedy Creek Land Ranch Lands, by the way, was run by a guy by the name of goes by the initials MT, and his last name was Lot. Those things mean anything to you, those names meaning to you Retlaw. Well, first of all, Ret Law means this backwards for Walter. Okay, Walter. So in nineteen fifty five, Walt Disney had a powerful lesson that he learned when he opened Disneyland in Anaheim, California. You see, when he bought the pro when he bought the land, did the development, opened the park, what he realized is that obviously by him building a park there, the value of the land surrounding the park went skyrocket. Well, he also realized that he had wished when he had done the development that he had built a larger development, that he had bought more land initially. Because when it came time for him to acquire more land to enlarge Disneyland out in California, well, the prices were through the ceiling. So He had to figure out if he was ever going to duplicate Disneyland into into something else, which later became Disney World in Orlando, Florida, he had to figure out a way to avoid making that mistake. So essentially, he needed to find a way to buy land as cheap as possible and to buy a lot of land. I mean, a lot of land, probably more than what he he, he thought he would need, so that if he had to expand down the road, he would have the ability to do so. So in May of 1965, Walt Disney started buying up land in the Orlando, Florida area to build what would later become Disney World. Disney World went on to open, I believe it was 1970 or 71, and when he bought the land, the majority of the land he needed to start Disneyland, Disney World rather, in Orlando, Florida, his average cost per acre, guys, was $80 per acre. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine buying... land at $80 an acre. Now, granted, back then, a lot of it was, in fact, swampland. It was otherwise useless land. So the people that sold the land at $80 an acre, they figured they were getting a steal because, after all, somebody sold them swampland in Florida. Well, little did they know that that land would later become Disney World. One of the ways he did this, one of the, the strategies that he used was he used land trusts to do this. And basically how that works is he would buy in a, in a different company name, the names I read you, Bay Lake properties, Tomahawk properties, Latin American development and management, Retlaw. Retlaw happens to spell, as I said a minute ago, Walter backwards, Walter, Walt Disney, Walter Disney. You see, now if he would have went in there and said, Hey, I'm Walt Disney. I'm Mr. Hotshot from California. I'm here to buy land. What would they say? Think about reedy creek ranch lands the name the owner was mt lot empty lot how about that You get the joke well back then in the 60s when they were out buying land disney put a bunch of players in place a bunch of his attorneys and staff members sent them out operating on the name of land trust fictitious names it's made up names so they could buy these different parcels of land because they were owned by different people, right? So out of these hundreds of th- thousands of acres that he wound up buying, they bought them. They were all bought separately, but from different people. Well, one of those people happened to be one of my cousins, believe it or not, uh, a couple times removed. I think it's like a third or fourth cousin to me owned the land underneath where the magic kingdom now sits, the actual castle itself. And I'll say this in the beginning, it sold at $80 an acre, but towards the end, eventually word got out. Somebody. Was happening. There was just a whole bunch, a whole flurry of real estate activity in one area. People put two and two together. They thought maybe it's NASA. Maybe who knows what it is, but it's somebody big player. So the price of land around the central Florida area back then in the 1960s went from $80 an acre literally to $80,000 per acre. If you can imagine that. Now, I'm not sure if that's a hundred percent true. Granted, you know, we can't believe everything we read online, but anyway, that's what I read from a, an article written by a very popular Disney historian, so I'm going to put a lot of faith in the fact that it's pretty true or pretty accurate. But can you imagine that eighty dollars to eighty thousand dollars per acre? Imagine being the landowner that bought that slant, that swamp land that was able to later sell it for eighty thousand dollars an acre. And I'll tell you, my cousin was one of them. He made so much money on the sale of the land that he was able to take care of not only his own children, put them through college, gives them an annual salary that's equal to the salary they earn plus. Their kids, so his grandkids, and then his grandkids' kids will still have more money coming to them. So he must have made millions and millions and millions of dollars when he sold that land. He was one of the very last people... To sell the land that is now Walt Disney World, and he basically was one of the parcels that was in the middle. So Disney and his his henchmen had bought all the property around him. He was the very one of the very last people. I'm not sure if he was the last or one of the very last people to sell. So he got somewhere in that eighty thousand dollars per acre. And I know back then he had a lot of land because Florida acreage, all swamp land. They were selling the American Dream, eighty to eighty bucks an acre. You could buy a lot of it because eighty bucks was a lot of money back then, but it wasn't a huge, massive amount of money. So imagine the windfall. Well, why do I bring this up? Well, first of all, I want you to think about what's coming out in the world. We got a lot of opportunity right around the corner that's coming. We're going to start to see some market shifts. We're going to see opportunities to buy. And if you go strolling in there, boys and girls, like Mr. Fancy Pants, and you're dressed to kill and you're driving that rented uh, Mercedes and the Bentley and, and like some kind of hot shot with the gold watch, there's two schools of thought here. One. I've heard a lot of real estate gurus say you should dress the part, uh, you should look successful so people will take you seriously. I don't necessarily disagree with that logic, but I will say this. Anytime you can, you don't feel the need to overshare the information. There are companies out there right now, Blackstone or BlackRock being one of them. I think it's Blackstone uh, that are buying up rental properties left and right. They're buying all kinds of stuff. They buy uh, using land trusts a lot of times because they don't want the sellers to know that they have deep pockets. So when you're out there in the marketplace, think about, how doing exactly what Disney did will work out for you. And one of the ways to do that is by using land trusts. Land trust basically, it's an agreement. It's a document that dictates who the trustee of a property is. And then again, the backside of that document is who is the beneficiary. Well, I don't want to go, I'm not going to dive deep into land trust because I want to make it muddy. I want to get you on board with the concept of land trust. More specifically, the concept of using anonymity to build your portfolio. Because you can get a lot done with a lot less effort if you're not out there representing yourself as some kind of big hotshot. I'm here to tell you that. How would you do this? Well, for one, we're coming into a situation very soon where we're going to start to see market shifts. We're going to see unprecedented foreclosures. All the stuff that's been going on with the uh, coronavirus crisis. We've got an election year coming up and nobody knows who's going to be in office. We don't, there are a lot of unknowns right now. And there's a lot of folks that decided to do a forbearance, which basically means they take their mortgage payments and they kind of put them off with, let's say, delay the payment for three months, four months, six months, whatever it may be. They make this agreement with their mortgage company, but that's only until in a lot of cases, a short time, it's maybe three months or six months, as I'd said, to where that money's now due. Well, guess what? And a lot of these agreements, all that's doing is accruing. The money doesn't go away. The payments don't disappear. They're not doing a loan modification. They're simply doing a forbearance. And the difference between a loan modification and a forbearance is a loan modification actually modifies the agreement of the loan. It changes the entire structure of the loan which in a lot of cases, what they'll do is they'll take payments that are in arrears and they'll put them on the back end of the loan. That allows people to, in good faith, to get caught up. But a forbearance doesn't do that in most cases. A forbearance basically says, you don't have to pay them right now. However, in X amount of months or days or whenever, all of the payments, the sum of all the payments will become due and payable. Well, for most people, if they haven't been working and if they weren't able to legitimately pay their mortgage to begin with, and then they get hit with, six months of mortgage payments all at once, what happens? They can't pay. And then what happens? Well, at the same time, what happens is all these people that are behind on their mortgage, they're not paying their mortgage right now. Most folks, I hate to say it, they're not saving the money that they need for the mortgage payment. They're spending it to eat. They're doing this, they're saving their money to pay the other bills. Let's say they got to put food on the table. If they're not working a job, maybe they got laid off. Maybe the business got closed, went out of business. Maybe they got shut down by the government. Whatever it may be, their paycheck is diminished. So instead of them being able to save the mortgage payment to set that money aside so that it could be combined with a couple months worth of mortgage payments and then allow you to get caught up in a few months, that money's getting spent on groceries and gas and things like that. So when the forbearance period is over with, it's all due and payable. And then you'll say, well, there's a foreclosure moratorium right now. Well, that's fine and dandy. But as it stands right now, that moratorium, the federal moratorium is only in effect until December 31st. And they're talking about with the stimulus packages that may get extended to January 31st. Of course, that still may, remains to be seen. We don't know exactly how it's going to play out yet. That probably won't be announced until I imagine after the election. But here's my point. What's happening now is a perfect storm for foreclosures. What, what that means is there's going to be a ton of inventory in the market. When they put a ton of inventory in the market, it basically trashes the housing market. The reason why the housing market in most markets is so hot right now is because there's very little to choose from. There's not a lot of properties that are for sale. So if you've got a lot of people that want to buy because interest rates are low, so you have demand, but you have very little supply, it creates a bubble. And that's what's going on right now. So when you flood the market with all these foreclosures, the bubble goes away because there's plenty of properties to choose from. Just because the property is a foreclosure doesn't mean it's a dump. Sometimes houses are brand new and go into foreclosure. Developers fail people that were not maybe properly qualified when they got their mortgage, whatever the story may be. Maybe coronavirus had them lost their job. Bottom line is a lot of inventory is coming. So for some of you, you're going to want to take title to the property and then you're going to want to maybe fix the property and flip it in another, in a later date. So keep in mind, what are the, some of the ways that you can do that, we're going to talk about that right now. And a great strategy that I've used in the past is to create a land trust. So you buy the property in the name of a land trust. Now, if you want to know about exactly how to do your own land trust, you can go to larryharble.com, my friend Larry, uh, forward slash land trust, larryharble.com forward slash land trust. His next land core land trust bootcamp is January 9th through the 11th. I think it's like uh $395 for one person or $697 for two. Anyway, you can create A land trust. You could do this yourself once you've got the paperwork and the training and all that. It's not rocket science. Create a land trust. And when you write your offer, you write your offer in the name of the land trust, just like Walt Disney did. The reason why you want to do this is a lot of these banks, they're not stupid. They don't want you out there flipping houses and making money after they're taking a bath because they're having to sell these properties at a discount because the borrowers have been foreclosed on, right? So they're put, they put rules and procedures in place to try to discourage people from fixing and flipping these foreclosures. One of the ways you can get around this is to buy in the name of a trust. So you establish a land trust, 123 Anywhere Street Land Trust, Jimmy's House Buying Trust, or whatever you may call it. it, doesn't matter. The name is immaterial, but you create a land trust. You buy the property in the name of the land trust. And then instead of selling the property, because what they'll say is that, you can't sell the property within 90 days or sometimes six months, or depending on what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or whoever the bank that is loaning the money, they may put a restriction on resale, which means that you're not allowed to sell it within a certain period of time. And that, and again, that's there to discourage people from flipping these things because the banks want to make the money. They don't want you to make the money. So you buy in the name of a land trust and instead of selling the property, quote unquote, you sell the trust. So what happens is the property now goes into the name of the trust, and what you do is you transfer the beneficial interest. So you make the new buyer, the end buyer, the trustee, and or and or beneficiary. Wholesalers can do the same thing. You guys want to wholesale bank-owned properties? One of the best ways to do it, guys, is to transfer the to buy the property or go under contract with the bank in the name of a trust, and then simply transfer the beneficial interest of the trust over to the end buyer, whoever's going to do the the fix and the flip. This way as a wholesaler, you can go into contract the name of 123 Anywhere Street Trust and then do a simple paper transaction where you sell your interest in the trust. That keeps the name of of the owner of record the same. Okay, You can make that an LLC and you can sign over the LLC to the end buyer. Makes it real clean. And you can learn how to do that if you go to Larry Harbold's class, of course, or you can... There's not a a whole lot of classes out there in land trust. So if you're in the the Florida or you want to come down to Florida and see it, or you're in the Florida market, go to larryharbolt.com forward slash land trust. I believe it's a three day event, three day class. There's a lot of information, but then you can use trust all you want. Here's a classic case of where one of my students just used a trust. She sold one of her rental properties to her tenant and she had an existing mortgage. So she sold, she sold it to her tenant subject to the existing mortgage. Now, she didn't want to upset the apple cart by worried, getting in trouble for having the loan call due because of the due on sale clause, and she also didn't want any drama as far as the insurance. So what she did is she took title to the property. She quit-claimed the property to a trust, okay, because she already owned it at this point. So she signed it over to the trust, and then she basically sold the trust to her tenant buyer. Now her tenant buyer becomes the the trustee and beneficiary, so she was able to effectively sell ownership of the house over to another party, easy peasy lemon squeezy, no drama involved, and it allows a buyer to get up a great deal on a great house. It allows my student to facilitate a transaction that otherwise would have had hiccups. And in this case, the buyer, her tenant, had good credit as far as she is concerned. As you know, should they pay the rent on time and all that, but they didn't qualify for a traditional bank loan. So she was able to use this strategy to transfer the the title to the property nice and easy without triggering any due on sale clause or making any drama for the insurance or anything like that. Uh, so guys, think about that strategy. Think about, I've talked about land trust before. If you want to learn more about it and you want to hear from Larry Harbold himself, you can go to LarryHarbold.com and you can listen to his podcast, Real Deal Podcast. Or if you go to cashflowguys.com, and you go to the podcast page and just type in the words land trust in the search field, it will pull up the episodes where Larry and I have talked about land trust. He is definitely the expert on land trust. I am not an expert on land trust. I'm nowhere near to his level of expertise on land trust. That's why I strongly suggest you spend a couple hundred bucks. You go sit in class with Larry. It's a great networking opportunity. Even if you never use a trust, it's good information to have to know. It's a tool, and a new tool, a pretty cheap one at 400 bucks. Tool in your toolbox to use to facilitate transactions. Guys, I can't begin to tell you how beneficial this has been over the years for me. Another benefit of the land trust is it does keep your business, your business keeps things private. So if you ever got sued and things like that, and you do have properties, by putting them in a trust, you provide a level of anonymity for your assets. That helps protect them indirectly. Keep in mind, a land trust is not asset protection. It just creates anonymity. So guys, think about that. If you have questions, drop us an email or head over to larryharbold.com forward slash land trust. And pull the trigger, get a copy of his uh, land trust training, get out to the course, meet him, shake hands with people, have a great day. This concludes today's episode. episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. Head over to cashflowguys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas so you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race.